The U.S. and China are on the verge of a trade war. Now that the Trump administration has moved forward with tariffs, China has vowed to retaliate, and President Trump threatened to retaliate in even bigger fashion. He says that trade wars are easy to win. But how will this really impact China's economy? Is it really growing at an incredible 7% rate? Or is it about to collapse from a mountain of debt and an aging population? Which are the myths and which are the facts? Welcome to Benchmark. I'm Scott Landman, an economics editor with Bloomberg News in Washington. Joining me today is my Bloomberg colleague, Jeff Kearns, also here in D.C. Jeff, welcome back to Benchmark. Thanks, Scott. It's great to be back. So, Jeff, the last time we had you on Benchmark, you were in Beijing, and now you've just returned from almost three years there as China economy editor. How does it feel to be back? Indeed, it was two years, 10 months, and 10 days, and it's a little bittersweet to leave China, but it's great to be back here in Washington. And we're happy to have you back here. Uh, so now, since I actually held the same position as you did in Beijing as economy editor for three years before uh, you were there, we thought it would be a good idea to talk about China, what we saw on the ground there, and address some common perceptions or misperceptions about the world's second largest economy. We'll call it myth or fact. Are you ready, Jeff? I'm ready. All right. So let's talk about trade first. China's economy is so dependent on trade that Trump says he can win a trade war with China easily. And China does actually export about four times as many goods to the United States as it imports. Is this a myth or a fact that China is so dependent on trade and Trump can win this trade war easily. What was the thinking over in China when you were there? One of the clear themes that the government said is that they're prepared to suffer the consequences, that they're not going to be pushed around into making concessions that they're not prepared to make or that they don't believe they should, and that they're ready to take the pain for a little while. And the system there is a unique one that positions them to be able to to do that without worries about political uh, blowback or anything like that. And so that's been a really clear theme from the government that they are ready to take on this battle and that they didn't want it and didn't ask for it. So let's talk about the perception then that China is really dependent on exports. I mean, you said they're willing to take some pain. So obviously tariffs would cause some pain for the economy. But you know, for, for decades, China was really dependent on exports on its manufacturing sector. How has its economy evolved in recent years? Is it still as dependent on manufacturing or have other kinds of industries sprung up to, to take up some of that economic growth? Well, that's a really good point. The economy is definitely evolving. The, the big theme is the rebalancing of the economy away from the old smokestack industries. And the traditional focus of the last three or four decades on exports and toward the consumer and toward services. Services since 2015 have accounted for more than 50% of output. So that was a big milestone. And the consumer is getting stronger and stronger as a, as a domestic prop for growth. So you're right, there's a real shift that continues to slowly push China away from that old dependence on making, uh, you know, exporting things and making 
cheap things to sell abroad. It's a it's a really different world than it was maybe five or ten years ago. Yeah, yeah, I can remember about even six or seven years ago. I forget exactly when, but services did pass uh, manufacturing part of the economy to become the largest sector and. Uh, there is still a lot of manufacturing in China that is still a very important part of the economy, but there has been this steady shift toward the consumer, toward the services that you know that show that the economy is just not this massive made in China thing that it uh, was for a long time, and that's why I think the government is is pushing this made in China 2025, which is sort of this evolution of what it means to to make things in China and and focus more on high technology and that sort of thing. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, in China, 2025 is probably one of the more underappreciated goals of the government. And it is really an ambitious uh, target to uh, really dominate a number of the you know, high-tech sectors. Uh, one, of the, one of the really interesting things that was, is a minor thing that came in the last year was the, uh, the new high-speed rail uh, line, uh, the, the new high-speed rail trains that rolled out the Fuxing, which means uh, rejuvenation, were 100% domestic technology. And this was rolled out with a big fanfare last fall around the time of the party congress uh, to show that this doesn't depend on German or Japanese imports to run these high-speed rail trains, which are really the kind of the pride of the industrial economy there. It's definitely something that's uh, an underappreciated point at this time that we're talking a lot about trade. Now, you, you mentioned this point about state-developed technology or uh, you know, technology developed in China. It, it's maybe a, a good time to segue to another myth or fact. Does the state control the economy or does the state let the private sector really do what it wants to do just without having full free reign to, um, you know, to, to do whatever business it wants? Well, I think the answer might be both. It might be that the there is a definite Communist Party control that's been tightening over, not just over state-owned enterprises, but also over other countries. But there's also a real high-level focus on putting more support into startups and innovative com- companies that will rise to become the next Alibaba or Tencent and really push the economy forward. And so there's two two different things going on there. There's been more state control over the state-owned enterprises, but also trying to make them leaner and more nimble to kind of get away from the old bloated and debt-ridden enterprises that they used to be in the past. So both of these things are happening concurrently. One of the things that's really interesting, though, with debt is that this is one of the main risks and that total control can kind of be exerted on companies that don't look like they're acting carefully and they can be forced to uh, reduce borrowing or sell assets. And so there is both an encouragement of the government to uh, to have more party control over companies to make sure that they're serving the government that way, but also to, also to support the new engines that it sees itself needing in the future. Right, right. There's really this combination of hands-on in some ways and hands-off in other ways, but it's never really going to get to a fully hands-off kind of approach because you do have this need for the Communist Party to maintain state control or, you know, maintain control of of the government and of of the country. And 
you mentioned you mentioned debt, and that brings us to uh, another point that we need to address, and something that really you know that that I remember I um, edited a lot of stories about when I was over there. It's kind of this growing theme. Um, let's ask this question: Is it a myth or a fact that China's debt is so out of hand that a crisis could be coming any day now? Well, we've heard a lot of that. There's probably been um, more of a focus on debt during the three years I was there from 2015 to, to this year uh, than was during the, I guess, the, the three prior years when you were there, uh, when there was probably more of a a, a, a boom in uh, uh, adding to debt. And uh, in the last couple of years, there's been a real focus on on maybe not reducing it, but flattening the pace of growth. And so the with debt, there was a real focus on these these kind of large conglomerates that was really interesting. It was a way to show that the government was addressing uh, problems and risks, but also by taking on some of the biggest names. And one of the b- best examples of that was uh, the Anbang Insurance Group, which was um, around the world, it was buying large expensive assets, uh, most notably the, the Waldorf Astoria in Manhattan, and uh, building what looked like an increasingly unsustainable portfolio with a lot of debt. So the government has seized the company and is prosecuting the, the founder for fraud and now is overseeing the stabilization of this this big company. And there's similar things happening with other large conglomerates like Dalian Wanda Group and also uh, HNA, uh, which are in similar positions where the government has come in to say, you're going to need to peel back a little bit of that debt and be careful. Yeah, it seems like you made the point when, when I was there 2012 to 2014, there was just this acknowledgement that there was an issue with debt, or at least you know a growing number of economists were pointing it out, and it was starting to kind of seep into the um, you know the public statements of officials or at least the thinking of what we could suss out of us and other journalists were able to figure out and at the same time, you know a lot of people are started making dire predictions this is going to be the beginning of a big financial crisis in China and of course you know that has not come to pass the government has taken these uh, kinds of steps that you mentioned to deal with you know what were some of the biggest offenders on this issue and you know has has tried a variety of solutions uh, different programs to to kind of um, address the debt issue and make sure it doesn't balloon out of hand and yet at the same time um, you know they do still use debt to support growth, and it doesn't seem like that's about to end anytime soon. Is that is that fair to say? That sounds about right. All right. Well, speaking of GDP growth, that brings us to another key issue with China's economy that a lot of people like to talk about, and that's the uh, those are the numbers that the Chinese government puts out on the economy every quarter and. I think it's close to four years now, somewhere in that range. We have had a GDP number every quarter that's been somewhere between 6.5 and 7%. Uh, you know, it seems pretty unrealistic from the outside. So, but let's ask the question is China's GDP really growing at this kind of 7% rate? Well, what I can tell you is that our own uh, Bloomberg growth tracker for China, which is developed by our economists in in Beijing and Hong Kong, is showing that it's about 
it, just under 7%. It's 6.99%. And uh, the 3- and 12-month averages are right around the same 7% level there. So that's something that's kind of an affirmation. And, and they've also done examinations looking at kind of what other data sources like big data say about this. And they, they've shown some affirmation that the economy isn't really actually growing at 3%. But the question about growth is an interesting one because China – one of the important things to remember is that there's a growth target that's set by the government. And so there's a a reason that you would kind of want to see that, that you might expect growth to be steered toward a certain level or, or these said to be at a certain level. And this year that's at 6.5%. And so coincidentally, that's what economists are projecting for this year's expansion. And that's an interesting, uh, <laughs> interesting coincidence. But the Growth figures are, are, you're right, they're very stable. They haven't moved uh, for the last three years, uh, quarter on quarter, by more than 0.1 percentage point. Uh, and so there's there's a real uncanny stability that really doesn't compare to any other major economy out there. Yeah, especially here in the U.S. where the GDP numbers swing from quarter to quarter. We went from 2.2% annualized pace in the first quarter. You know, Now the forecasts are for around 4% in the second quarter. That's a little bit different way of looking at it. That's quarter on quarter annualized. Uh, China uses year over year. But even with that, we've seen stronger variations in the U.S. and just about you know every other major developed economy. Uh, so to wrap up, I wanted to turn to one last major issue hanging over China's economy, and that's the demographics. You know, one theme that was also coming up while I was over there is that the workforce was starting to shrink, meaning the working age population was actually starting to get smaller. Uh, you know, People were getting older. Not enough babies were being born. This is partly the result of uh, government policies. You had the one-child policy for a long time. It's now a two-child policy, but even then, I'm not sure if birth rates are really taking off. But that brings us to the question of how this is going to affect the economy. And the question is, is it a myth or a fact that the shrinking workforce, the aging workforce, is going to pose a big risk to China's growth in coming decades? Well, I'd say it's a fact that it's a big worry for policymakers. And they've they've talked about this concern. The One of the big milestones was that repealing of that one-child rule. And now uh, our own reporting says that that's uh, the 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 new limit of two children is due to be scrapped altogether, so there's no limit. Uh, when that one-child rule was first uh, eliminated, there was a little bit of a pop in the birth rates, but then the following year, that kind of settled right back down to 17 million a year, so it didn't really sustain for more than one year, which might have been a little unsettling and might have been the reason that there's uh, consideration of just dropping that that rule altogether. But there is a the long term trends are not uh, are not encouraging and and by uh, 2030 there uh, the projections show that there's going to be more people who are 65 or older than those who are 14 and younger so that's a big uh, potential headache for for policymakers to address and it doesn't argue well for the long term growth trends. And coming back to our original theme of how trade tensions will affect China's economy or whether you know, Trump can win a trade war with China. Uh, it, it's actually one area where in the long term, the U.S. may actually hold a structural advantage if the U.S. population can grow uh, faster than than China or, or not shrink, actually. But 
you know, like like we've also reported here, that depends on immigration. And if immigration is, is subject to restrictions, then, you know, that actually will result in uh, a labor force in the United States that's uh, stable or shrinking. So, uh, you know, I think it is pretty interesting to compare the long-term demographic trends that uh, aren't really all that different in both countries in, in a really big picture. Would you agree with that, Jeff? I, I would. I think that's a really compelling point. So, Jeff, thinking about all these things that we've been talking about, can Trump easily win a trade war with China? Well, I guess that depends on what the definition of victory is. But uh, right now, it's uh, it, it looks like a pretty chaotic outlook. So I'm not really sure how to judge that. But I think that the uh, for China, the, the the country is confident that they can sustain anything thrown at them. And uh, the other thing for China that I think is the one thing I might have learned is that don't bet against China. It's full of surprises. I, I'll never forget we arrived on Monday, August 10, 2015. And the next day was the yuan devaluation, which was a, a major crisis for the the whole world uh, and, and markets fell around the world. And there were all kinds of predictions about uh, the downfall of the uh, the unsustainable debt and uh, inflated stock markets and here we are. That economy is looking pretty darn robust now. Jeff, I remember that day well, too. And what you say is correct about uh, the predictions that were made at that time and how we should all have a little humility in what we judge to be the outlook for China and this budding trade war as it takes off. Jeff Kearns, thanks for joining us on Benchmark. Thanks, Scott. Great to talk to you. Benchmark will be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal, Bloomberg.com, our Bloomberg app, and podcast destinations such as Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us. You can also check us out on Twitter. Follow me at Scott Landman. And our guest, Jeff Kearns, is at Jeff Kearns, J-E-F-F-K-E-A-R-N-S. Benchmark is produced by Topher Forges and Magnus Henriksen. The head of Bloomberg Podcasts is Francesca Levy. Thanks for listening. See you next time. Mm-hmm.